Alrighty, and we are rolling. This is Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, and I am your host, Alex Painter. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. As I have mentioned in many previous episodes, there are 500,000 podcasts which you could be listening to at this very moment, but you have elected to join this one, and for that, I am extremely thankful. Just to let you know, you can listen to the show as you always can on Apple Podcasts. So if you have an iPhone, just please click that purple podcast icon. Click subscribe. Give a rating if you feel so compelled. You can now listen to the show on Spotify as well. So if you go to Spotify, if that's your preferred uh, method of listening to podcasts, you can just search Onward to Victory there and find the show very easily. If you'd like to go to the show's main homepage, it's onwardtovictory.podbean.com. Thanks to some Consensus All-Americans, whom I will be talking about here very soon, the, sh- the website was actually able to get a bit of an overhaul. So it's very sleek, it's very easy to navigate, it looks a lot better than the old one, most importantly, and all the episodes are housed there. So if you'd like to visit Headquarters HQ, that's facebook.com slash Onward to Victory Podcast. Please like and follow the Facebook page if you are of the Facebook persuasion because that is where all of the show's updates and all of the show's information, some analysis, some insights, some video, that's where all of it kind of churns out of. Now, back to the Consensus All-Americans. These are our very, very special group of people who have elected to donate monetarily to the show. And so I've dubbed them Consensus All-Americans because that's what they are to me and that's what they are to the show. And if you would like to join the ranks as a Consensus All-American, please visit paypal.me slash Onward to Victory. And that's if you want to give a one-time donation. However, if you want to set up and give a donation maybe a little bit every single month to kind of keep the proverbial lights on around here, please visit patreon.com slash Onward to Victory podcast. Please visit either of those and we'll talk about our Consensus All-Americans here soon. So first of all, thank you to Joseph Rakish again, who's theme song, Knut Rockney, serves the show well as our theme song. You can hear it on uh, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, however you listen to music, it's on there. So again, the song is Knut Rockney, super easy to listen to. I listen to it before every Saturday Notre Dame football game. So, so please give the track a few spins. So back to our aforementioned Consensus All-Americans, I'd like to thank all of the Consensus All-Americans, both present and past. So currently we have Adam from Fort Wayne, Indiana, who is on our Consensus All-American roll. Thank you very much, Adam, again for your donation to the show. And joining the All-American ranks is Colton from Cleveland, Ohio. So uh, he says, this is the first time I am named a All-American. So that's pretty cool. Huge fan of the podcast. Keep up the great work, Alex, and go Irish. Colton. So Thanks to both, again, our past and our present Consensus All-Americans who truly make a lot of this possible, including, as I mentioned, the website's updating, which was so badly needed. It's so much easier to navigate now, and it just, again, looks much, much better than the old one. 
And I also got to give a quick shout out to our first consensus All-American, Will from New Orleans. Congratulations. Your LSU Tigers have risen to number one in the country. So Will's an LSU fan, but he does love the podcast, so I really appreciate that, um, the fact that he does. But also, I just want to throw out a quick congratulatory note because LSU's having one heck of a good season, which brings me to kind of the elephant in the room. And despite sounding fairly chipper on this particular day, it is actually Halloween Eve as I'm recording this. Many of us are still kind of reeling from last weekend, last weekend's game against the University of Michigan up in Ann Arbor because, yes, it was a stinker. Uh, possibly one of the worst football games in recent memory that Notre Dame has played. And I'm, I think we're all kind of still grasping and, 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 and trying to find something to grab onto as to why this happened. How did this happen? Coming off a of bye week and the students didn't even have class the week leading up to the game. And how could we possibly come off the bus so defeated and just be shown how much more Michigan wanted that football game than us? And honestly, I don't really have an answer. I think... I think how the team reacts this weekend against Virginia Tech will be very telling. And I don't want to spend too much time on it. There's a lot swirling about the program right now, including rumors of a possible Urban Meyer becoming the head coach, which is, is very unfounded, as we know. In fact, Urban Meyer's wife is, like, really crummy that this rumor has started. I don't think she has any interest in her husband coaching again. But that being said... Some of the some of the smoke that's kind of surrounding the program is merited. Some of it's not. But like I said, let's wait and before we go off and fire every coordinator and coach, let's let's see how the team reacts. Uh, yeah, I, we can't we can't take back the Michigan game. It's it's done. It's over. It's in the past. Let's move on and let's see what happens the rest of the way. So I know that that's no that's no consolation, but. What else can we possibly do? And there will be an episode in the future that we will talk about every, you know, kind of do a, we did a season preview before the season started. There'll be a season recap after the regular season and before the bowl game, a bowl game preview episode too. But, um, so that's, that's really at this point, all I have to say about that. Let's see how we react this weekend against Michigan, excuse me, against Virginia Tech and go from there. I also wanted to bring up a bit here uh, that was just released from the school. A couple episodes ago, we talked about the Fair Pay to Play Act coming out of California. Now the NCAA looks like they are passing this widespread. So it's no longer a state issue. It's going to be widespread NCAA. And the president of the University of Notre Dame, Father John Jenkins, actually released a statement about this. Or I guess I should say a statement was released on his behalf. And I accessed it through the USA Today. And it says, quote, Notre Dame President Father John Jenkins has long supported the idea that student athletes should be able to monetize their popularity. As long as abuse is prevented and their character as students, not professional athletes, is preserved. In 2015, the New York Times reported that, quote, Father Jenkins, a passionate defender of his alma mater, has considered the arguments. He agrees that the NCAA is struggling to find its role on a changed playing field. And in what should come as a surprise or may come as a surprise, he suggests that student athletes should be able to monetize their fame with limits, end quote. So 
put me in the camp that had no idea that Father John Jenkins was actually on record a few years ago being in favor of this. And I think he really hit the nail on the head. Very well, probably more succinctly than I was able to a couple episodes ago, and that's that when he mentions that, quote mentions that Father Jenkins agrees that the NCAA is struggling to find its role on a change playing field because, honestly, the rules of amateurism were written as they are currently constructed in an era several decades ago when there were hundreds of millions of dollars being funneled through these football, basketball, and other sport games and contests and match, whatever have you. So again, I think a much needed update to what it means to be an amateur athlete needs, it just needed to be done. Right, wrong, or indifferent, it did. And you know, after after the last episode, I heard from a couple couple people, and some agreed with me about what I was saying because I am very much in favor of this. Others didn't, and that's absolutely fine. That is absolutely fine. It wouldn't be a hot button issue if we all agreed, right? So, but I, as I mentioned before, I'm an advocate of of this kind of being at least well thought out, well thought through, but. It is very, very necessary, I believe, at this time and place. So I'll be curious to see how this moves forward, but I just wanted to throw that out there since this is a Notre Dame football podcast and Father John Jenkins is the president of Notre Dame. So here we go. Episode 10. It's I, Sometimes I find it really hard to believe that we are here already. Episode 10. As my wife can attest, this was one night over the summer. We were laying in bed. It was probably in the middle of the night, quite literally. I rolled over and I said, hey, I think I'm going to start a Notre Dame football podcast. And she probably said some variation of like, oh, that's that's a really good idea. That's really great. You'd be really good at that. I don't know if any of those things are actually true to this day, but she kind of has learned to bear with my, I get really, really wrapped up in things and I tend to be very passionate about the things that I, well, am passionate about. And I still can't believe that this is kind of where we're at right now. We're on episode 10 and I just wanted to say that I think we're doing something really cool here, and I think it's something pretty special. And hopefully Onward to Victory is one of your favorite places to get Notre Dame insight and information. Like I said, it's never going to be in a place where I am going to be able to churn out the most content. That would be impossible. But, however, hopefully as far as what is meaningful to you and impactful and interesting, hopefully Onward to Victory has kind of vaunted to the top of your list. But honestly... It's becoming clear that people are finding the show every single day. New people are finding the show every single day. And again, thanks to our Consensus All-Americans, both past and present, uh, not to get too much into it, but I was able to subscribe to Advanced Analytics within the Podbean uh, as our host site. And this last episode about Emil Sitko, who, the Fort Wayne Flash, episode 9, about the kind of unsung hero that Emil Sitko was, uh, even when he was dominating on the gridiron, especially as now today. But anyway, so through the advanced analytics, I, I was able to find out that people from 23 different states listened to the last episode, plus a couple people from Canada, and there's still that one from Spain. I knew there was one person from Europe, so now I've we've triangulated it to the entire country of Spain. So if you're that person who is in Spain right now listening to the show, send the show an email onward to victory uh, podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to love to give you some praise uh, for being clearly our most long distance listener. But anywho, but it's as I mentioned, it's it's become 
quite a thrill to see the show grow and to see the show reach people you know from all different not just geographically you know geographical places but also just kind of different walks of life uh some people aren't even you know notre dame's not even their favorite team but they just enjoy the show and so again i i appreciate the aspect of community and i really like what we're building here so here we go episode 10 this could be the Matt Lovecchio episode. Some of you might remember him. He was the quarterback for Notre Dame back in 2000 and 2001. I actually remember reading about him when I was a paper boy delivering papers. You, as a paper boy, you have to roll up your papers every single day. So it was right around that era. I was a t- young teenager uh, reading the sports page every day. And I remember reading about Matt Lovecchio. It could be the Chris Fink episode, the current wearer of number 10 from Dayton, Ohio, wide receiver. But let's be honest. You're going to have a number 10, uh, you know, in Notre Dame history, and it's uh, it's going to be anybody. It's going to be Brady Quinn, who was quarterback for the Irish 2003 through 2006. So I guess episode 10 is the Brady Quinn episode. But it's also an episode where we're doing something different. Uh, if you saw the episode placard, you kind of understand what, what direction we're heading. We're going to do a true crime episode. And true crime is all the rage in the podcasting world actually i i'm on or i subscribe to a couple true crime podcasts it's really interesting and it's not new that's that's what a lot of people i don't think realize true crime is not new in fact true crime according to some sources got its start in 16th century england so we're talking several dec- uh, excuse me several centuries ago but why do we think true crime is is interesting to us and I don't know, in thinking about it and doing a little bit of research, I guess the biggest reason is is that most of us inherently are not deviant personalities. And so evil is interesting to us. Deviant personalities are interesting to us because they're divergent from the people we are. So it's really interesting to hear. Like I, I think people at their core are attracted to things that are opposite of what they are. So most of us are law-abiding citizens. Yes, maybe short of a speeding ticket or perhaps jaywalking every once in a while. But So the idea to, to learn about something that is, again, so divergent from what you are personally, I think, is of, of interest. I think a lot of people feel as if they if they learn about true crime, that's going to bolster their level of preparedness. And that way, they'll be able to identify situations and scenarios where they might be in peril and they can avoid becoming a true crime story themselves. So maybe, again, it's that level of preparedness to, to try to avoid, again, a, a situation where you might find yourself as a subject of, of a true crime scenario. But also... There's the there's a mystery aspect to it, the you know solving the mystery of crime, and I think that's interesting to a lot of people. So when you think of when I think of true crime in Notre Dame football, there's really only one place, at least not maybe not one place, but the biggest place to go is the kind of mysterious side of the tragic death of Coach Knute Rockney, and please note that I am presenting a lot of information here. Some of it, and I will be sure to note, when it becomes a bit more speculative or circumstantial. However, the story surrounding this, the lead-up, if you will, to the death of Coach Rockney that we are going to talk about is 100% true. So just to to kind of give a little bit of a spoiler, I mean, it's, it's going to be fairly obvious very early on in the story, but there's a theory 
about Coach Rockney's plane and the plane crash that ultimately killed him, that there was a bomb planted on the plane by the mob. So there's this, quote, mob bomb theory. And some people get really, really upset when the mob bomb theory is talked about. And we'll give credence to those folks. And they just do not like the theory because they feel like it discredits Rockne and it's, it's not true and it's all circumstantial, this and that. And that's perfectly fine. And my intention of the episode is to not sully anyone's reputation, particularly if you listen to the show, you have a good sense that I would never do that to, to Knut Rockne, unintentionally or intentionally. But it doesn't change the fact that there is a really interesting story, again, in the lead up to this tragic incident, which we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about it as if it is a kind of a classic true crime story. So you've listened to me this far, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's not often that we're 18 minutes into any episode and the main, uh, the entree hasn't been served yet. So we're going to get going here in a minute. But so here's the deal. I've been teasing this. So if you share this episode on Facebook, or if you just merely send the show a message or an email giving me your thoughts about this mystery, again, a Facebook message or an email at Onward to Victory at uh, Onward Victory Podcast at gmail.com, pardon me, and I'll repeat this at the end of the show. You will be in the running in a contest, which I will draw live, to win a signed 4 by 6 uh, photograph of Johnny Lujak, Notre Dame's second Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, so please, interact with the show. This is a golden opportunity not just to have your voice heard. I'll read all of the all of the feedback I get, but also to win something truly incredible. So anyways, without further ado, let's, let's crack into this right after this. The case begins on the west side of Chicago on July 2nd, 1891, with the birth of an individual named Jake Lingle. Little is known or written about his upbringing, with the exception that in 8th grade he dropped out of school. But really, this was not uncommon for the day, as the high school graduation rate in 1909, the year Lingle most likely would have graduated, stood at a paltry 8.8%. Lingle found odd jobs during his teenage years to sustain himself until landing a job with the Chicago Tribune as an office errand boy around the time he was 20 years old. After several years at the paper, he was elevated to the role of reporter. Now this title would have been a pretty generous one since Lingle could hardly write. He was much more known as what was called a leg man. He would hit the streets and try to find crime stories, and when he'd find them, he'd run to a payphone and call it into the Tribune, which would eventually be turned into a news story. As you might imagine, finding crime in Chicago in the 1920s was not a difficult task, for in 1919, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution was passed, which banned the sale and consumption of alcoholic beverages. And the amendment was about as popular as you'd imagine. In hundreds of cities, large and small, networks of illicit establishments that would sell bootleg booze began popping up. You may have heard of these. They were known as speakeasies. 
In Chicago, the largest and most powerful bootlegging outfit was ran by notorious gangster Al Capone, also known as Scarface. During the decade that would become known as the Roaring Twenties, a period of swinging jazz, the Harlem Renaissance, and other social and cultural movements, no one's cocktail glasses or beer mugs remained empty, and no small thanks to Capone's Chicago outfit. Lingle was paid $65 a week working for the Tribune, roughly 90, excuse me, $950 in today's money. Despite being a low-level reporter, he was something of a celebrity in the newsroom, having allegedly inherited a family fortune, and he was always dressed to the nines. According to the New York Daily News, Lingle, quote, lived with his wife and two kids in a suite with a million-dollar view of Lake Michigan at the posh Hotel Stevens on Michigan Avenue. He vacationed in Havana and owned a weekend home near the water east of Chicago in Michigan City, Indiana. End quote. But Lingle had not inherited a family fortune. In fact, quite the opposite. He was in a very unique position, for he was close childhood friends with William Russell, who was Chicago's police commissioner. Now, at some point, Capone's people got to Lingle and put him on their payroll to tip them off to alcohol raids being performed by the Chicago Police Department. Using his role as both a crime reporter and Russell's friend, he was able to serve as something of a double agent for Capone, constantly taking bribes from the mob in exchange for insight into law enforcement activity. According to bank statements and deposits, it is clear that Lingle was bringing in roughly $1,100, or $17,000 in today's money, weekly, from bribes from the mob. Now, I'm no mathematician, but that is a far cry from the $65 then and the inflated, adjusted, inflation-adjusted $950 per week the newspaper was paying him. Though Lingle was very affable, he made many enemies in the crime syndicates around the city. He would often sell privileged police information to the highest bidder. According to the Al Capone Museum, soon Capone stopped taking calls from Lingle after discovering that he had also been giving intel to Capone's enemies. He had also allegedly double-crossed the Northside faction after demanding more money for police protection for a new gambling den, which was ultimately raided anyway. Either way, Lingle was in something of an anxious state as he headed down to the Washington Park racetrack on June 9, 1930. As his paper would later say, a quote, an ace at covering sensational crime stories he was about to become one, end quote. While en route to the track and in the middle of a crowded subway tunnel, an unknown assailant walked up behind Lingle and fired one bullet into the back of his head. After Lingle fell to the ground, mortally wounded, pandemonium broke out in the tunnel, allowing the killer to drop the murder weapon and escape. The Chicago police dispatched hundreds of officers to find the killer, and in the following days, almost 700 known or suspected gangsters were rounded up and questioned. Though Lingle would be buried a martyr and a hero, his dark dealings would soon become publicly known. But, just like in a classic noir-style crime movie, the incident had witnesses. 
and the murder occurred just as the South Shore Rail Railroad was unloading its passengers. The South Shore Line was one the one that connected Chicago to South Bend, and so one of the passengers getting off the train at that very moment was Father John Reynolds, a Holy Cross priest, Notre Dame alum, rector to one of the residence halls on campus, as well as a history professor. While the other passengers fled the site out of fear, Reynolds rushed to Lingle to attempt to perform last rites. Reynolds stayed with Lingle until the police arrived, and having seen the killer, he gave police his eyewitness account. Eventually, Father Reynolds returned to Notre Dame, but was completely unnerved when he discovered he had not just witnessed any crime, but a mob hit. Eventually, low-level Capone mobster Frankie Brothers was arrested and charged with the murder of Jake Lingle. The problem was that Brothers was not the man that Reynolds believed he saw pull the trigger. And his suspicions may have been correct, as many thought Brothers was simply taking the fall for an even more ruthless and more loyal Capone hitman named Frankie Foster. Given the publicity of the case and Capone's desire to keep Foster out of prison, Brothers was quickly brought forth as something of a sacrificial lamb. According to an account written by Jeff Harrell in the spring 2019 edition of Notre Dame Magazine, quote, For nine months, Reynolds was a marked man. He couldn't step outside without watching his back. The article continues, quote, In one instance, the previous November, a strange man had approached Reynolds outside Morrissey, taken a picture of Jake Lingle out of his pocket and a photo of Leo Brothers out of the other, and asked, are you going to testify against this man?" End quote. The scariest incident occurred as Reynolds waited for a train in Chicago and came face to face with Frankie Foster, again the man he believed to have pulled the trigger and killed Jake Lingle, and six other intimidating goons. The priest noticed that one of the men pulled a gun from his side pocket and shifted inside his coat in plain view for Reynolds to see. I knew I had two things going for me, two strikes on them, Reynolds later reasoned. One, I was a priest. Secondly, I was Irish, and if he killed an Irish priest in Chicago, the whole city would turn against him. Foster returned to the car then with his men. Two letters that were sent to Reynolds at Notre Dame carried the same ominous message. Notre Dame will be more sorry than it realizes if they allow you to testify. On Friday, March 27, 1931, the terrified priest took the witness stand. When asked to identify Brothers as the shooter, the priest vaguely replied, quote, He answers the description. End quote. Of the 14 witnesses, seven stated that Brothers was the man. Seven stated he was not. So now we can see why Reynolds' testimony was in fact so important. But for the jury, the seven who identified Brothers was enough, and he was sentenced to 14 years in prison, and he would ultimately serve eight. The next day, Saturday, March 28th, Reynolds had returned to campus and was taking a stroll when he happened to run into his old friend, Knut Rockney. Rockney, short of Babe Ruth, was the most famous sportsman in the entire country, coaching the Notre Dame football team to three national championships 
including the previous two in 1929 and 1930. Rockne had actually coached the track team when Reynolds had set the school's two-mile record back in 1916. The two talked about the trial, no doubt, and also that Rockne had just been offered $50,000 by a major Hollywood studio to work as a consultant on a, new on a new movie being filmed called The Spirit of Notre Dame, which was to be released that October, next football season. The film would feature appearances by all the four horsemen, as well as legendary Irish lineman Adam Walsh. Anyways, in 1931, $50,000 was an exorbitant sum, roughly three-quarters of a million dollars in today's terms. Rockley, Rockney lamented to Reynolds that finding passage to Los Angeles on such short notice was proving to be immensely difficult. What were the odds? Reynolds had actually booked a plane ticket to Los Angeles to get away after the trial. But as it turned out, the trial was running long, as brothers actually wouldn't be sentenced until the end of April. So Reynolds insisted that Rockney take his ticket, which was set to leave on Tuesday, March 31st, and would have him in Los Angeles that evening. So the plane that was meant to carry Rockney to L.A. was actually grounded before takeoff after the structural safety log hadn't been signed off on due to some loose panels on the wing of the plane. So despite the trepidation, an unknown airline supervisor did in fact sign off on the plane and it took off that Tuesday. However, less than an hour after taking off, the plane went down, killing Coach Rockney and the seven others on board. Jesse Harper, who ironically was replaced by Rockney as Notre Dame's football coach, coincidentally lived less than 100 miles from the crash site and was called in to identify Rockney's body. Rockney was returned to South Bend for burial. Tributes for the fallen coach poured in. President Herbert Hoover called his death a quote, national loss. The King of Norway, Rockney's birth country, actually knighted him posthumously. His funeral service was broadcast on television around the globe. Later, Jerry Braunfield, who authored the book Rockney, the Coach, the Man, the Legend, wrote that, quote, until Franklin D. Roosevelt's death in April of 1945, 14 years later, there simply wasn't a funeral in American history that produced as much emotional impact as the funeral of Knut Rockney in April 1931. So just for a bit of clarification, everything that we have discussed to this point is corroborated by first-hand accounts. Moving forward, as promised, this is where the information gets a bit more speculative. Okay, so where does the theory that the mob killed Coach Rockney begin to grow legs? Well, I'll tell you. So on January 6, 1933, nearly two years after the fact, the South Bend News Times published an eye-popping cover story under the headline, quote, U.S. agents find explosion caused airplane to crash, end quote. In the account, the News Times cited information from an unimpeachable source, claiming that Rockney's plane was brought down by a bomb that had been planted there with the intention of killing Father John Reynolds. 
According to the article, quote, government authorities have traced every item of evidence and are satisfied that it was a time bomb planted in a pouch in the Western Airline plane which caused the explosion and disaster above a Kansas ranch on March 31st, 1931. Father Reynolds, according to the information, had booked passage to California on the plane, but had changed his plans at the last minute, end quote, as we had previously discussed. So the following day, January 7th, 1933, Detroit's Evening Times ran with the story with an even bolder headline, quote, Bomb killed Rockney, put in plane by gang. The subhead read, quote, Plot bared by Secret Service, time blast intended for witness to killing those whose tickets noted coach used. So for those proponents of the bomb theory, there's also other factors to be considered, including for one, the only witness to the plane's last moments, teenager Edward Baker was quoted saying that he saw the plane, quote, explode in the air and, quote, spin in flames as it fell to the ground. Another point was in the Department of Commerce report of the incident and that they couldn't conclusively determine what caused the crash, but did note that, quote, the first reports were that the plane had exploded. As Harrell with the Notre Dame Magazine noted, quote, finding evidence wouldn't be easy. By the time the lead federal investigator, Leonard Jordan, arrived in nearby Cottonwood Falls, souvenir scavengers had ravished the plane's crash site and hauled away significant chunks of the plane that contained vital clues, end quote. And just be mindful, this is less than two decades after the first commercial flight had happened. Honestly, if a plane came out of the air, regardless of how obvious or subtle the cause was, it was just very difficult to determine causes because this was an industry and this was a science that was still comparatively very much in its infancy. So the plane's designer, Anthony Fokker, determined that the plane was held together at the ribs and joints satisfactorily, disputing claims that the plane had essentially fallen apart in the air, uh, which this naturally, he naturally took this claim. I mean, it was his company, and this would have been a PR nightmare if a faulty plane would have went up in the air. And the plane that was carrying Rockney and the seven others was less than a year old, and according to one report, had less than 65 pounds of mail. So it was on board. So it, it wasn't overloaded. So he countered the claim with a theory of his own that the pilot had lost control, perhaps due to inexperience in blind flying. In other words, for in layman's terms, when a pilot's flying an airplane and can't see very well or can't see at all, and it's kind of 100% instinctual at that point. Robert Fry, who was the pilot of the doomed craft, was alleged to, though, according to airmen who came to his posthumous defense, was one of the best blind flyers in the country. Now, is this possibly just Robert Fry's friends coming to his aid or vouching for his piloting skills? Or was he truly one of the best blind flyers in the country? We, we really don't know. It's not really explained upon. But a Californian paper later reported that the Secret Service had in fact discovered that a bomb had been placed in a mail pouch in the plane, according to an anonymous source. So whether it's an anonymous source or an unimpeachable source, Unfortunately, we do not know who these people are. And as just as I kind of make in my notes here, who was the South Bend News Times unimpeachable source? But inquiry was made at the highest level. Deadspin.com, through the Freedom of Information Act, was able to access multiple memos composed to the director of the FBI, perhaps you've heard of him at the time, J. J. Edgar Hoover, imploring him to use the Bureau's research to do additional digging. 
One of these memos was actually written by Indiana Congressman Samuel Pettengill. But irrespective, shortly thereafter, the public's attention from the story shifted to different matters and the story was forgotten. And truthfully, officials at the federal level never really gave the theory much credibility. Though a mountain of circumstantial or speculative evidence seemed to pile up, they claimed that there was not a shred of physical evidence to support the theory. Notre Dame historian and author Jim Lefebvre notes the circulation war between the fledgling South Bend News Times and the more sturdy South Bend Tribune as being the driving force behind the story. He quotes a couple experts in his article titled, Explaining the Rockney Crash, Truth and Fiction. Starting with Dr. Greg Cloyd, a Notre Dame historian, quote, That story never found legs or corroboration when first published, or since. It was a sexy urban myth about a famous person in a widely publicized air disaster. That sells newspapers, end quote. Samuel G. Friedman, professor, professor of journalism at Columbia University, is also quoted, saying, quote, Circulation wars of that time offered a persistent temptation for editors, reporters, and publishers to be reckless with facts and flagrant with speculation. The article also quotes Niles Rockney, Knut's grandson and de facto family spokesman, who says, quote, The story is not truthful in any way, shape, or form. It comes up every few years, but is still just plain baloney. And finally, sculptor Jerry McKenna, whose creations include the statue of Rockney outside Notre Dame Stadium and another one in Voss, Norway, says, quote, The mob bomb theory dishonors a great man, end quote. But there was one contrarian voice to all of these, and that was Father John Reynolds himself. In the late 1930s, Reynolds would move to Utah and become a Trappist monk, noteworthy for their oaths of silence and reclusive lifestyles. He was interviewed in the mid-1980s as a 92-year-old man, shortly before his death. For Reynolds, there was still no doubt in his mind, some 60-plus years later. He said, quote, they bombed it. Yeah, that was the way they got even with Notre Dame. His interviewer inquired and pressed him on the issue. Quote, the mob rubbed out Knut Rockney because they let you testify? Reynolds continued, yeah, yep, absolutely, he maintained. Oh, I am sure of that. Oh, yeah, end quote. Was there any foul play surrounding the plane and Coach Rockney's tragic demise? We will never fully know. But regardless of whether or not you believe it's true, the harrowing saga of Jake Lingle, the crooked newsman, Leo Brothers, the mob's fall guy, and Father John Reynolds, the priest who found himself at exactly the wrong place at the wrong time, absolutely is true, along with Reynolds' account of giving Rockney his plane ticket. So, in a sense, Rockney will inexorably be connected to the, quote, mob bomb theory forever, irrespective of whether you believe the struggling South Bend News Times was just practicing a bit of what would become known as yellow journalism. Yellow journalism was actually the act and pretty common practice that a lot of newspapers would employ where they would have these really dramatic headlines, but present things as fact with actually very little legitimacy or very little research behind them in an effort to increase their paper sales. So was the bombastic headline and subsequent story just a load of malarkey? 
a sterling piece of phony journalism? Was the unimpeachable source a trustworthy anonymous account who feared for his or her own safety if their name was exposed, or perhaps merely just a figment of an unscrupulous writer's imagination? What do you think? Please, by all means, share your thoughts with the show, and I promise you I'll read all of your messages next episode. But uh, in the meantime, we'll be right back and we'll finish this thing off. Well, and I hope that was fun. It was certainly fun to kind of look up and research, write, and speak into the microphone and bring to life, so to speak. So hopefully, like as I mentioned, hopefully you did enjoy that. Now, as I mentioned, if you share this episode on Facebook, which takes literally one click, or if you send the show a message or an email, you can send a Facebook message or an email at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com if you just send me your thoughts about this incident. If you, again, my feelings won't be hurt if you think it's just uh, completely an urban myth or is unfounded, or if you think that it's the gospel's truth. Like I said, I want to hear from uh, anyone who is listening. I want to hear your thoughts because it's typically a theory that's roundly dismissed by a lot of intelligent people. However, in doing some research, I found that there was some equally, at least from my vantage point, equally intelligent people who were either unsure or were kind of vehemently convinced that there was some foul play here. So I would be very curious to see what you all think. And again, if you send the show a message or an email with your thoughts, or if you just simply share the episode, I'm going to do a live raffle here soon where you could possibly win a signed photograph, a 4x6 photograph of Johnny Lujak, who is Notre Dame's second Heisman Trophy winner. And in addition to that, he's also the oldest living Heisman Trophy winner today. So truly a, a really special piece, really, really cool thing. So hopefully you decide you want to interact with the show that way, and then you might you might win something kind of cool. So Anyways, I guess that'll bring us to a close. Please visit the Facebook page at, at facebook.com slash Onward to Victory Podcast. Give a like and a follow. Again, if you want to become a consensus All-American, please visit paypal.me slash Onward to Victory. You can give a one-time donation or patreon.com slash Onward to Victory Podcast. If you want to kind of just donate a regular amount each month. It can be any small denomination or large for that matter, I suppose, but any denomination helps. And we're seeing some really cool improvements to the show and the interface and how you can listen to the show, which again, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as Podbean are the three major outlets. So this is in no small part thanks to all of our past and present Consensus All-Americans. And please, if not anything else, uh, I've noticed a trend in, again, researching this episode that people tend to get very fired up about this theory, this mob bomb theory, and take it kind of offensively. Please, that is not my intention. I am only decided to do an episode about it, again, because it kind of bends into that true crime genre, kind of a, what's become a true crime fad for podcasting. But I don't think there's any question, if you listen to previous episodes to that you know the place that I'm coming from is nothing but utmost respect for Coach Rockney. In fact, if you look at the show's logo, uh, I figure there's enough about, there's enough pictures of Coach Rockney 
you know, as the Notre Dame football coach. So the main picture you'll probably notice is the uh, 1910 team with Coach Rockney when he was the the captain of it. So it's actually him as a player. So again, I have a lot of respect for Rockney, and I've I've done very extensive research on his life and and his coaching exploits. I just thought this is very very interesting. So for one final time, thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to this. Thank you to our Consensus All-Americans, both past and present. Uh, special thanks to Adam from Fort Wayne and Colton from Cleveland for sponsoring this episode. But as always, this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And I am your host, Alex Painter. That wraps us up. As always, go Irish. <laughs>